Thank you very much for coming. Welcome to uh, an LSC public event. Today we have Professor Amar Bide, who's going to be talking about his new book, Call for Judgment, A S Sensible Finance for a Dynamic Economy, which I think is a provocative, or at least a, a thought-provoking way of looking at the financial institutions, risks embedded in them, and the way those risks were managed and actually mismanaged in the last uh, a few decades culminating in what we all n now call the, the crisis. So, without further ado, terrific. Omar. Thank you very much. Welcome to this cozy room. Uh, but, uh, I'm going to speak really quickly because I'm told we're going to, that somebody's going to hit an eject button and we're all going to be tossed out at 6.30. So, uh, I'll, I'll dispense with the early jokes and everything. Uh, so, uh, yeah, the, the obligatory advertisement for the book, so this is, a, this is the book that is, I believe, available for sale outside, and this is a look inside this little lecture. Uh, so let me start out by framing this in terms of two misinterpretations of the financial crisis. There's one misinterpretation which is too broad, and it's offered by the likes of, of Sarkozy, which basically says the whole system of capitalism, particularly U.S. American, uh, U.S. Anglo capitalism, is broken, and we need to fix this root and branch. And then there is the too narrow uh, interpretation of this crisis, which is offered usually by insiders in finance. And they said, yes, we had a little bit of a problem in 2008, but. The basic structure of the financial system is fine. All we, all we need to do is to make sure that regulation catches up with these great innovations that we have produced over the last 20 or 30 years. I argue in my book that both interpretations are wrong, that the, 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 the fundamental structures of the real economy, at least in the United States, are fairly sound, that we have developed through a process of, of through over the last 100, 100 years or so, what I describe as an inclusive system of innovation, which has delivered the goods, which has produced unprecedented prosperity, uh, m more than we, anyone could have imagined 100 years ago, but that the financial system is severely flawed, that it, it, it's, it's, not, it's not a few things here and there, that we have developed a financial system that undermines the real economy, that doesn't support it, and is also inherently unstable and that these defects of the financial system are not some things which suddenly emerged after 2000 or 2002. It's, it isn't that investment bankers suddenly became greedy or some really bad instruments were in, in, in invented in 2002. There's been a long, slow, creeping build-up to, to this collapse. It derives in part from financial theory, and it derives from misregulation. There's a view that the financial system is overregulated. There's another view which says the financial system is underregulated. I argue that we've had a, a misregulated financial system. Uh, if I had to sort of summarize my uh, a central idea in one slide, this would be it. So I would argue that our, our, our economy delivers the goods because it's venturesome, that it's comprehensively venturesome. And it's comprehensively venturesome because we decentralize judgment on the one hand, and we coordinate this decentralized judgment not just through prices, but through a variety of other mechanisms such as dialogue and relationships. And then, of course, we tie uh, responsibility to, to decentralization. Otherwise, the thing doesn't work. I argue that over the last 20 or 30 years, modern finance has moved in exactly the opposite direction. 
that it's become progressively centralized and concentrated, that we have replaced judgment with mechanized models, that we have dispensed with communication, and almost as, an, as the inevitable result of concentration, uh, we, have, uh, we have untied responsibility for, uh, uh, with, with, with the right to make decisions. So the three things that I will talk about in this talk, uh, I'll spend most of my time talking about how modern finance undermines dynamism. Here I will talk about what I think of so, as some of the crucial features of an innovative economy. Uh, I will then draw from these features some implications for what a good financial system ought to look like. And then I will describe w what I think of as a dangerous and dysfunctional divergence between the financial system and, uh, 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 and the real world. I will very briefly discuss what, what made finance pathological. That's about two-thirds of my book, but that, 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 that would have you in here for hours, and I want to leave something for you to want to read afterwards. Uh, and then I will, all, I will spend some time offering you what I, what I think of as, as a radical and retro proposal. So let's start about thinking about the real economy and, and, and the kind of innovation that it entails. There's a view which goes back to Schumpeter and which is carried through to modern departments of science and technology, which is a very elitist view of innovation. It takes the point of view that we have a great entrepreneur, we have a great, uh, a great in innovator, that guy or gal does his stuff and the rest of us simply enjoy the fruits of, 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 of what that person produces. In the modern version of this, we sort of deify Silicon Valley, we deify research and, uh, research and development. And I think that's a fundamental mischaracterization of the kind of innovation that underpins widespread prosperity. Widespread prosperity, uh, as I've argued in my last book, requires widespread productivity improvements, you cannot have a prosperous society based on the contributions of, of 3 or 4% of the workforce. The, uh, we have to include most of the workforce. This means that we not only need to develop great new innovations, we need an effective system for the use of these innovations. This, this in turn requires not just science and technology and advances in science and technology, it requires a range of advances. It, it, it requires advances in marketing, it requires advances in sales, it requires advances in, 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 in organization, it requires innovations by the users of, of, of technologies. This is a system which is not elitist, it is a system in which many people contribute and many people benefit from. Uh, and then the question arises, how is this thing organized? I argue that the organization of the system has at least four important features. It's decentralized, it's case by case, and it's forward-looking, and it involves judgment. Each of these four things are important. Decentralization simply means that it's widespread. And there, there are lots of people who have the right and the opportunity to make decisions which are innovative. It's case by case in the sense that one may rely on precedent, but one actually looks at the facts of each case in deciding what to do. It's forward-looking in the sense that it does not rely, one thinks about precedents in history, but one imagines things that have not yet occurred in, a, in order to innovate, and it's fundamentally judgment. It, 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 it isn't a mathematical calculation. Now, the, the classic article uh, arguing for decentralization was the 1945 article by Frederick Hayek, 
which is aimed principally at central planning, but it, it, is, it, it is germane even today. And the interesting thing about the article is that there is not a word in there about the lack of intelligence or the lack of incentives of the central planner. So, the, so he, he, even if uh, Hayek implicitly argues, even if the central planner has perfectly aligned incentives, that, that central planner will not be able to make good, de good decisions because you need a, a great range of facts, on-the-spot facts, which only the on-the-spot on decision maker has access to in order to, to, uh, to, 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 to respond optimally to, what, to, to, to an ever-changing economy. But the only facts that can be, there are only a few highly abstracted facts can be communicated to a central planner and decisions made based on the basis of just these few abstracted facts tend to be wrong. So we want the farmer to make decisions about how to plant, what seeds to use, how much fertilizer to use, when to harvest, etc., etc., taking, relying on the farmer's knowledge of the soil of the market that, that the farmer is confronted with. The interesting thing about Hayek's piece, another interesting thing, uh, other than the fact that he does not men mention the incentives of the central planner, is that it, ha it says nothing about innovation. That, that the, the problem that Hayek talks about is responding to, uh, to changes. But if you now introduce into this, in, in, into this system the problem of innovation, the Hayek's case for decentralization becomes stronger, not weaker. Uh, because innovation, requires imaginative forward-looking choices. And these forward-looking choices not only require knowledge of the facts on the ground, which only the, the on-the-spot person has, it frequently requires hunches. It, it, it involves sort of, I think, perhaps, if I did this, that, such and such would work. And these hunches would be virtually impossible to communicate to a central planner. Furthermore, to the degree that, that these innovations require <coughs> an iterative process, it, you'd be very hard put to, to, to communicate this, uh, these changes as you went along to the central planner. So the, the argument for letting individuals decide is even stronger, again, because that, uh, so, so it is best if we have a large number of innovators who decide what, what initiatives they want to pursue, and we have a large number of consumers at the other end who, who, who choose rather than a, pan, a, 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 panel, a, a, a panel which picks. I should say that in a modern economy, uh, this decentralization is not absolute. Uh, it is limited by economies of scale, that, uh, that we don't choose, uh, that there are only so many sh shoe sizes that get produced. People who work in a shoe factory do not have the opportunity to figure out what shoe sizes they want because if everybody did that, you would not get you would not get these economies of scale. And there are also, as technology advances, you get more and more negative externalities that need to be controlled. So, in a, in a sense, you have a paradox that it's the decentralization of initiative that leads to the advances of technology, and it is the same advances of technology which then demand rules to control the negative externalities and to realize the, the, the economies of scale. So, uh, so in, in a sense, you can imagine a very prim primitive Robinson Crusoe, who, who has all the freedom in the world but really cannot do much except knock off coconuts. Uh, we have the freedom to drive at 200 miles per hour because we have automobiles, but if you drove at 200 miles per hour, this would kill other people. So, 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 so it's, it's, this, it's this interesting balance 
between decentralization and control that, that we live with. But as a rule, I think one could say that our, our system has prospered because to a very large degree, much more so than our forefathers, more and more people have the right and the opportunity to make these, these, these imaginative judgments about how things proceed. So then the question is, how is this stuff coordinated? Uh, the classic answer in Hayek's article is, of course, prices. And we all love prices, and prices are fantastic for, 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 uh, for, uh, for co coordinating decentralized activity. But common observation suggests that this is far from the only mechanism that we rely on, particularly in a technologically dynamic society. So the, uh, the, the engineers who are working on developing this microprocessor uh, their activities are coordinated by formal organizations. There's a committee which decides you engineer will work on this piece of the microprocessor, you will design to these specifications, because unless you did that, these independent actions of the, uh, of the engineers would never come together to produce a microprocessor that worked. We rely to a very great degree on dialogue. Uh, it is not the case outside of economics textbooks that we, one can coordinate by sim simply putting up price and quantity pods. It is particularly not the case in an economy where, where technologies are changing, where products are changing. So if we produced, exactly, produced and consumed exactly the same things over and over again, then perhaps we could dispense with dialogue and we could just talk in, in, in numbers. But because we are constantly doing stuff which is new, we need to have conversations. You the, you, the innovator, needs to have a conversation with me to figure out what my problem is that you're going to solve. Having figured out that you've solved this problem, you then need to persuade me uh, that you have solved the problem. Then you need to understand to what degree you've fallen short, and, and so on. So it's impossible to conceive of a modern economy without an, an enormous amount of dialogue taking place through a variety of, uh, <laughs> through a variety of mechanisms. And again, the proportion of, uh, of modern commerce that actually passes through an anonymous market or a nearly anonymous market is, is, is fairly small, or in, in, in fact quite trivial. And perhaps again one could imagine a primitive society where nothing changes, where stuff is transacted principally through, uh, without relationships, but in almost everything that we do, we rely on relationships to, to economize on dialogue to make sure that we understand wh wh what it is we're doing. We rely on relationships to make adjustments, because whatever contract we may have entered into at, at the outset rarely can, can proceed through to the end w uh, w w without some trial and error. And then, of course, I, I hardly need belabor this point that if you're going to have this decentralized system, we need to tie the, the decentralization to, to real responsibility. So I would argue then, if one thinks about what a good financial system should do, it should nurture and mirror the dyna a dynamic real economy. This, and this, th this may seem completely trivial, but it was only three years ago that a blue panel driven, uh, a, a blue ribbon panel convened by the Treasury Secretary produced a report which said that the American financial system was fantastic because it produced a large number of very high paying jobs. And if only the rest of the economy produced this large number of high paying jobs. Today, I think most people would be skeptical about the idea that the worth of a financial system is that it produces, makes a lot of investment bankers rich. 
Now, we do not think about the contribution of prison guards in terms of we have lots of prison guards. We, we think about what, 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 what they do to public safety. So if you, if you take that for granted, that what, what we really want is a financial system that nurtures real economy innovation, I would argue that the same kinds of characteristics that you see in the real economy ought to be reflected in the financial system. And this isn't merely because I like symmetry, because we like symmetry. There, there are good fundamental reasons for why this is so. So why, why, why is it important to have on-the-spot financiers? It is because the demand for finance is, is generated by on-the-spot people in the, in the real economy making judgments about why they need money. So if I am thinking of buying a house, I am making in the Hayekian sense a judgment. I am wandering around neighborhoods, I am sort of seeing whether the neighborhood is upgrading or deteriorating, I am looking at the history of prices, I'm making, I'm, I'm, I'm making a guess as to whether prices will hold or they collapse. I look at my own, uh, I, I'm, my own job. I ask whether it's secure. To what degree it is secure? Will I be able to pay? Will I be able to hold that mortgage or not? Uh, and therefore, for a prudent, for a, for a prudent uh, banker to make me that loan, that banker also needs to understand the same facts on the ground. That, I, that, 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 has, that have gone into my decision. Likewise, if I'm, if I'm, if I'm a small businessman or a person looking for a working capital loan, I'm making a judgment about the prospects about my, of my business, I'm making a judgment about my customers, about my markets, and so on and so forth, and on that basis I am asking for a loan. And therefore the only sensible way to make that loan again is to, is to, is, is, is to share with me those facts on the ground. Uh, to go the other way, to imagine that you can make these loans sensibly uh, based on five or six variables that you can throw into a model is like believing that you can have great central planners who can make great, great central plans based on five or six variables which were, were tossed up to, to Moscow. Now in order for these judgments to, to, to take place, you also need dialogue. The banker needs to have an extensive conversation with the person who is, who, who is demanding finance. Uh, to the degree that most finance is extended not for overnight periods but is extended for, uh, for months if not years, there's a pretty good chance that whatever contract you, you signed at the, at the outset will become obsolete. That if I take a, if, if I take, if, if I take a business loan, it is possible that my business will grow faster than I expected, in which case I'll bump up into, in, 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 into, into my borrowing limit, or I may run into a hiccup and I may violate a covenant. At that point, the banker has to make a decision about what to do, and that decision can only be sensibly made if there has been an ongoing relationship. If I am, if I borrowed money to buy a house and I, uh, I felt behind on my payments for three months, again, the banker has to make a judgment about the prospect that I am a, a truthful, honest fellow, and I, I haven't just sort of, I, 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 I'm not messing around, I'm not committing fraud, that I'm diligent about. Uh, 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 about where to get money from, and that too requires a relationship. And then again, to the degree that most finance is not conducted anymore by individual money lenders, that financiers are making judgments on the basis of other people, uh, the depositors or, or, or the stockholders, there has to be some kind of tie between the out between the decisions that the, that the financier makes and, and, and what happens. It can never be perfect, of course, but at least there has to be a reasonably tough tie. And I argue that 
there are certainly sectors of the economy where this kind of boots on the ground, judgment-based, dialogue-based finance still continues. So we still have small business loans made by individual bankers. We still have venture capital. Venture capitalists who finance the most <coughs> advanced technologies in the world still use the most primitive methods for, f for figuring out how to invest in people. They actually go talk to people. They don't run a model. They, they sit on people's boards. Uh, but I argue that the big growth in finance that has taken place over the last uh, over the last 20 or 30 years is not in this old-fashioned area of finance. It's that we have seen a continuing and massive displacement of good finance by pathological finance, which is highly centralized, concentrated, which relies on mechanistic models, which which involves no dialogue and relationships, and which has no responsibility for bad outcomes. Uh, let me focus attention on two specific pathologies. And these are patholo pathologies in involving mass-produced judgment, the, the mass-produced judgment-free explosion of asset-backed securities. Now, it was always the case that because of economies of scale in, in, in the real economy, there was some degree of necessary centralization in finance as well. So if you wanted to finance a railroad, you could not finance a railroad by going to your local banker. So you had to issue a, a, a big slug of, of, of bonds. And for these big slug of bonds to be issued, you had to delegate to some degree the judgment for whether these bonds were sound or not to an underwriter and possibly a, uh, a, a, ratings, a ratings agency. But here, the centralization was derived from the, cent from the economies of scale in the real economy. And the centralization did not dispense with judgment it did not dispense with dialogue. So the underwriter actually came and looked at your books, looked at your, your, your traffic projections, had discussions with you. The rating agency might actually have a negotiation with you and say, if you throw in this covenant, then we'll give you a higher rating or a low rating. What we've seen, over, again, over the last 20 or 30 years is the securitization of assets which could easily be financed in this decentralized way. There is no reason why a local banker cannot make a housing loan. There is no reason why a local banker cannot make a housing loan. There's no reason why a local banker cannot make uh, a credit card loan. So the allegedly, the, the advantages of this asset-backed, of this kind of asset-backed finance lie not in the, any economies of scale of, uh, of the activity being financed, but in the activity of financing itself. So allegedly, we have we have, we have created models which dispense with the labor-intensive process of exercising judgment and have replaced this with precisely the same kind of thing that brought the Soviet Union to grief, which is reliance on a small number of variables which do not take into account the facts on the ground. We have similarly seen, we, and this, this, this hardly again needs to be told, we have similarly seen a massive explosion of complex derivatives. So till about the 1980s, uh, pretty much there were no o o o complex OTC-based derivatives. There are contract-based bond, bond instruments and, and, and currency instruments. The, the, the thing really got started in 1980. It grew to about $100 trillion in 2000, and I think six or $800 trillion by 2006 and 2008. None of this would have been possible without massive mechanization. Each of these contracts is yay thick. It is incredibly complicated. And yet, we can, a trader can do a trade in the flash of an eye by pressing a button, 
in, go, in, in, in come a bunch of variables and outcomes, the other stuff, no judgment needs to be exercised, no facts on the ground need to be known. You need to know nothing about nothing except a small number of variables who, 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 which came out of nowhere. Uh, and this mechanization again in turn has facilitated the concentration of finance into a few mega firms. So as long as finance was a labor intensive activi activity, the, the span of control problems meant that if you had a hundred bankers and they, they were all sort of exercising judgment, the only way you could sort of, you, you could supervise these bankers was to second guess their judgment. And therefore the numbers of, number of bankers that you could have working for you was fairly small. And you had, you, it also limited the domain in which you could operate. Allegedly, because we have now mechanized this process and we can do it by the numbers, just as the chairman of Intel can manage a vast range of microprocessor producing units, allegedly uh, Jamie Dimon et al. can oversee a vast empire of these complicated things. In fact, what we really see is ineffectual top-down management. These people have not a clue. Uh, they, they, I, mean, I mean, a great number of illegal, I mean, JP Morgan and Bank of America have recently been accused of, and uh, it's probably right, of robo-repossession of uh, <coughs> Uh, of mortgages, which is the, the law says you're supposed every person who's signing a foreclosure document needs to be aware, familiar with the facts. They just they're so swamped with the number of foreclosures that uh, they're off to the races. Now, does Jamie Diamond personally tell these people to do this? No, but can Jamie Diamond possibly have any control over all the stuff that goes on in his massive empire? Absolutely not. Uh, likewise, we've we've lost any regulatory oversight. Time was that the way you examined a bank was you went into the bank and asked for the loan files, and you examined every file, every loan file, uh, loan file by file by file, and see whether it was it, it, it was properly done or not. Now an examiner walks into the likes of a J.P. Morgan Chase or a Goldman Sachs, and what does he see? He sees a giant computer with terabytes and terabytes of data. How on earth can this stuff be be properly examined, and how on earth can its uh, cannot be sensibly regulated. The consequences in the establishment's view is this is like the Model T. This is like the assembly line. We have more <coughs> cheaper credit. I mean, just as we we made uh, car loans affordable, cars affordable, this is simply making car loans affordable. This is a a quote from Raghurajan in an allegedly critical article of the financial crisis. And Raghu says financial innovations have produced beneficial real effects increase lending, entrepreneurship, and growth rates of GDP while reducing the costs of financial tr transactions. It is absolutely true that the costs of financial transactions have been reduced. The evidence of all the other stuff is at a minimal flimsy. Uh, more, more realistically, it doesn't exist. Uh, allegedly, we have better risk management. This is Donald Cohn, uh, Vice Chairman of, of the Federal Reserve claiming the derivatives ena enable risk and return to be divided and priced to better meet the needs of borrowers and lenders. Hmm, nice. Uh, ben Bernanke, 2006. Banking organizations of all sizes have made substantial strides over the past two decades in their ability to measure and manage risks. Concepts such as duration, convexity, and option-adjusted spreads provide better risk returns to stockholders and greater resilience of the banking system. Two years before the thing just blows up. Uh, this, this is the more resilient banking system. Uh, 
In my view, there is a very serious downside to this robotic decentralization. First of all, simple Hayek and analysis su suggests there is a massive misallocation of capital. Uh, when you eliminate case-specific facts, you will inevitably give money to people who shouldn't get it, and you won't give money who should get it. As far as the model is concerned, income is income is income. It doesn't matter whether the income is of a school teacher who has a job for life, or whether the income is that of, a, of, a, of an automobile plant worker whose plant is announced to be closed tomorrow. The model doesn't see that. And you know, the, the model doesn't see that the person who came to, to apply for a loan was drunk. The, as, 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 as long as, as the stuff is filled, is filled up, it also it also this this also leads to sort of sector-wide misallocation of capital. I would argue. Now think of the think of the issue of growth from the point of view of the CEO of a large bank. If I want to grow my small lending portfolio, then I have to go through this awful process of hiring lots of bankers. Then I have to put them through a two-year training program. And then they have to sort of go around looking for good clients, and then and, and on and on and on. Instead of which, I can crank up this mortgage-producing machine, because uh, because I don't need any any judgment on the on the part of the people who are who, who are generating these mortgages. All they have to do is to get people to fill up these forms. The data gets shipped out to New York, and and, and and off comes the answer. You can really grow really rapidly, and you can get economies of scale, uh, very high returns on equity. Uh, the attractions of building a huge derivatives book are irresistible. Again, you don't need to do much. You, you know, you, you hire ten traders. Uh, soon, you can put, you can build a trillion. You can add a trillion here and a trillion there. And in good times, the stuff makes really high returns. Once every ten years, it collapses. But in the meantime, you took a, a, a nice piece of the action. Why not? And what, what, what this will in inevitably mean is that those sectors of the economy which even today cannot be easily mechanized will be deprived of credit and the attention and the money of the, of the banks will go to those sectors where mechani mechanization is easy. So we'll have a huge boom in, in, housing, in housing lending and we will have niggardly increases in, 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 in lending to small businesses. It's also inherently unstable. Of course, when people make judgments, they make mistakes. This is the, 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 and this is indeed why we decentralize stuff, is because these mistakes are independent, unless there's sort of a, a social pathology and, and there's a widespread mania. The, the mistakes of, in, in, of the individual lending officer will be uncorrelated with, with other people's mistakes. Whereas if you're going to lend on a model, uh, and basically everybody's going to lend on more or less the same model, using more or less the same historical data, if that model is wrong, it's going to bring the system uh, uh, crashing down. Uh, it also, I, I believe, I, I, it, I, it would be hard to, to uh, I, or at least I don't know anybody who's done it, but I have a very strong belief that this belief, uh, the idea that securitization, which is supposed to be risk-reducing, uh, may not actually be reducing risks. So it used to be believed that the housing, market, the housing markets in the United States were completely local. And so housing in Boston was uncorrelated with housing, housing in Chicago. And then people said, aha, wouldn't it be nice if a bank, instead of merely holding loans in, in, in Boston, could, could, could sell off these loans and instead hold on its books a quote-unquote diversified portfolio of 
nationally diversified, diversified portfolio of mortgages. Well, what happens? One thing I believe what happens is because you're going to use exactly the same model across all, uh, across all markets, there will be a natural pull to, to, to increase correlations. Plus, once you begin to think of this as an asset class, prices of asset classes tend to move in unison. So as long as you have individuals uh, making individual judgments about stocks, the, 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 the correlations of stock prices will be lower than when people begin to think of stocks as an asset class which they buy and sell as an index. You've seen this in 2000 and 2008 in commodities as well. So this whole diversification business which is supposedly risk reducing, I suspect, is actually risk increasing. And finally I'd say this, and this is probably worst of all, hardest to measure, but the greatest threat to our long-term prosperity is that it jeopardizes the legitimacy of capitalism. We do not begrudge uh, the founders of Google that they have made $10 billion each because we recognize whether we calculate it or not that if you add up the value that all of us, hundreds of millions of us, have derived from Google, you add up that economic value that swamps the $20 billion that the founders of Google made. And this is why we, yeah, we may be a little bit jealous and so forth, but at least in the United States, we, we, think, we think this is okay. Once you begin to get a game where you think no value has been created for society, at least value with the right sign attached to it, uh, and where this, this wealth has been, has been accumulated based on government subsidized uh, loans, then we, we, we then fail to distinguish between wealth accumulation that is socially beneficial and wealth accumulation that is, that, 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 that is not, and then we sort of say the whole system of capitalism is bad. Um, how did we get to this? And we have uh, the world, one of the world's experts in this room sitting in this room, you are. So, uh, so it's been enabled by theories which ignore the the, the kind of multifaceted, unquantifiable un uncertainties that we all face. Each of us at every m minute is making risky decisions. You took a, you, you took a risk that you, you, you'd come here and you'd find this a waste of time. I bet you nobody calculated probabilities. We order things off a menu. Nobody calculates, prob nobody calculates probabilities. I would suggest that for most of you, 99% if not more, of the risky decisions that you take are not based on quantifiable probabilities, and this is no accident. It's because the, the kinds of situations that we de that you're dealing with involve night and uncertainty. These are one-off decisions. Each of them, they're mundane, but they're one-off, and therefore it makes no sense to do this. However, to turn all risks into one or two measures of, uh, of, of quantifiable risk really makes it easy to, to mechanize stuff, and therefore we mechanize stuff. We go a little bit further. We assume that there are no differences of opinion. Then we go even further. We assume that the world is a that the real world is a stationary place. That if there, there, the only changes that, that are taking place are according to some known probability distribution. When in fact, if you really believe in a comprehensively dynamic world, tomorrow is different from yesterday and day after will be different, different, different from tomorrow. If we simply cannot rely on theories, theories whose implementation requires that we, re, re, that, 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 that we rely on historical facts. I also argue at some length that what we've had is misregulation. I said earlier in my talk that, most new that many new technologies demand more regulation. 
but the degree to which they demand new regulation varies. So for instance, personal computers require very little regulation. All you need to do is to submit your personal computer to the FCC. The FCC checks it for, 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 uh, for whether it interferes with radio transmissions, and if not, you, you, you're fine. That's fairly low-level uh, regulation. In contrast, you could not imagine automobiles functioning without extensive regulation of, 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 of traffic and of safety. And I argue in my book that securities laws ought to be a little bit like the regulation of, of computers. There really is no compelling need for strong securities laws. But in fact, what we've seen over the last 20 or 30 years is securities laws that have become progressively tighter. History suggests that banking is an activity which you simply cannot run without tight and close, super, uh, close regulation. And uh, the, the United States had banking regulation at a time when virtually no other form of commerce was regulated, and with good reason. But in fact, what we have seen over the last 30 years is that banking regulations have been weakened. But this is just sort of like a thumbnail sketch. Uh, look at it in the book if you wish. So what do we do now? The establishment's diagnosis, like I said, is regulation fell behind. Old, you know, Obama, old institutions cannot adequately oversee new institutions. Ben Bernanke says it would be a mistake to think that financial, there's anything wrong with financial innovation. It continues to be a tool for making our financial system more efficient as long as our regulators are more alert to the risks, which means that they were asleep or what. Uh, and Tony Blair, after in, in, his, uh, in his book, after having described at great length why regime change was a good thing, tells us that credit default swaps are not so bad either. Um, so the insider cure is to modernize, which is crank it all up. So we have the Dr. 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 Frank Act. It's 2,300 pages long. Uh, well, you know, it does all this kind of stuff. It's this Financial Stability Oversight Council. We have a council of people who are going to monitor systemic risks. Well, didn't the, wasn't the Fed supposed to monitor sort of excesses in the economy? And if they missed the housing bubble, are we going to really have any? Uh, there's the S SEC and CFTC as the authority to regulate over the counter derivatives, the court of, and you, you go on, on and on down the list. Uh, from the point of view of the skeptical outsider, and I, I don't think I'm the only one, this regulatory catch-up is both futile and it's pointless. It is futile because there simply aren't enough humans in this world to do all the things that this, that, that this regulatory catch-up would thinks we should do. Uh, we'd, we'd have to hire basically every PhD produced by every PhD program and somehow prevent them from going and be becoming investment bankers if they are going to actually be able to control any of this stuff. Secondly, we've done it, guys. We've done it over and over again, and it's failed over and over again. So till the early 1980s, the United States had no uniform capital requirements for banks. So the principal line of defense for imprudent banking was loan-by-loan loan examination. <coughs> At the end of that examination, the examiner would then have a discussion with the banker and say, I think given the kinds of risks that I've seen, you should have this capital requirement. As time progressed, and, loan, and the kinds of activities that banks undertook simply could not be examined loan-by-loan, loan, we went into this game where we said, we can't see what's going on in this box. We just demand that we have a big airbag. Or, 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 or bigger brakes, and, and as long as our airbag is somehow scaled to the to the size of the risks in this box, we'll be fine. But it can't be, 
because this this again assumes, for instance, that all securitized mortgages will have the same the same kinds of risk, and they ha they will des deserve a certain amount of capital. And people play with this game, and they say, "Oh, we made a mistake. Let's chop up this category into some more categories." And you, and you can keep doing this, and it it, it 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 just doesn't work. And then finally, I say, it is not worth the effort. We as a society invest large sums in making our highways work. We we pay policemen salaries. We set up traffic lights. We have traffic inspections because we believe that this is an automobiles are an innovation that produces net benefit to us. That that it merits this. We don't regulate petrox, but then petrox don't do any harm to to anybody. So the question is, if this is an activity which has the potential to do a great deal of harm, and the only way to control the harm that it does is by setting up this vast regulatory structure, then I can no longer, as a Hayekian or a libertarian, simply say, well, let, 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 let him do wh what I want. I then want, uh, it's no longer digustibus non disputatum, I want some evidence that this stuff actually produces benefits commensurate with the potential risks and commensurate with the costs of regulating this activity. I haven't seen this evidence. Nobody has seen this evidence as far as I know. So let me offer you a retro-radical uh, alternative. It's radical in the sense it sharply breaks with the Squam Lake crowd, it sharply breaks with Dodd-Frank, but it's retro in the sense it merely, to a large degree, takes us back to the kind of regulatory system that prevailed in the United States in the 1950s and 60s. So my, my overall philosophy is case-by-case case enforcement of broad rules. So I want on-the-spot examination with boots-on-the-ground examiners, not top-down edicts of how much, capital, uh, how much capital you should have for what kinds of risks. The kind of model that I have in mind is the common law model. So Congress or Parliament passes laws, but the, uh, and there are pre historical precedents, but the enforcements of these laws takes place case by case by juries and judges looking at the facts of, of, the specific, of specific cases. Of course, case by case means it's labor intensive. And it is infeasible to think of case by case enforcement for every good thing that you might imagine that, that should happen in, in, in the financial system. Therefore, I argue we should focus on the most crucial parts which history tells us are important. It's focus on a sound depository and payment system. Uh, and if you do that, again, history suggests we will also provide credit within prudent bounds and contain speculative manias. So in the 1950s and 1960s, there were virtually no bank failures. But it was not because banks did not ex take risks or did not take credit risks or did not expand uh, credit. Bank lending expanded the rate of about 9% a year in the 50s and 60s. So you don't actually have, if, if, if you sort of focus on the sound depository system, I think as a byproduct you'll get this. So the very specific proposal is severely circumscribe and regulate what depository institutions, by which I mean anyone who takes short-term deposits from the public that, that, that can do. Limit them just to simple loans and hedging operations. The standard is pretty simple. It's what an examiner with a basic accounting or college degree can understand. If, if it requires a PhD to figure it out, it's not allowed within the depository institution. I mean, and perhaps we need, if these things ever come to litigation, something like a prudent lender rule. 
which is if this was your money would you have made this loan and if you can persuade a jury that you would have made this loan then it's okay if you if you fail that, that that's the, that's the sort of the common law approach to it i would shut down money market funds they're a parasitical free riding institution which cannot coexist with the banking system with with a, with with, with a prudent lending system and perhaps the time has come to reassert the full government mo monopoly over money so time was when all currency in the united states till about 1863 was privately issued currency it was madness and we ultimately said no 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 we're going to have government issued money uh then we said well that's not good enough because stuff in the uh, in in checking accounts is also quasi money and then we basically guaranteed uh checking account deposits as well let's just sort of end this let us say that there's no that there should be no difference between the money in my wallet if the money in my wallet is the liability of the government show so should the money in my bank deposit that the bank is simply an agent for for for, for this transactional process get rid of this uh, this notion of of interbank transactions failing because the banks don't trust each other or people refusing to accept checks on drawn on banks which they they, they think they're going to fail just basically have what in the united states are treasury direct accounts for everyone and on the other side i say there's no need to regulate hedge funds and investment banks all the other stuff can people can do as they please no additional oversight so it's like we have uh we have we have a certain rules which say that cars cannot be more powerful than this in order to be street legal we don't ban cars which are more powerful than that we simply say you can race them on formula 1 race tracks so put all the crazy stuff on formula 1 race tracks and formula 1 has its own set of rules so they can play in their privately governed ruled markets just keep them off the public road uh no credit or counterparty risks with re re respect to regulated institutions no ldcm problems where we implicate the, uh, we, we implicate the banking system no lehman brothers and if people want to gamble with each other's money as long as they don't create short term deposits in the public be my guest uh so to conclude let's focus on what is really broken let us not go after sort of the 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 the, the model of capitalism as a whole there is a deep seated pathology of centralized finance that needs to be attacked that a stabilized state status quo ante is not the answer there are people who say oh the economy is not going to recover unless we bring back securitized lending no 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 good riddance to securitized lending let's not bring it back even if it takes a little bit longer to get the boots on the ground ground kind of lending back and let's let's go there and on the other side let us protect and nurture decentralized innovation which is the ultimate source of modern prosperity and a good life questions right uh i think we'll we'll collect a few questions because i want people to have the the chance to ask the questions the lights here yeah with the lights uh to this kind of yeah sure it's a dark subject but uh <laughs> there you go yeah right so so we'll i think we'll get some questions on uh, for uh for professor bide please yeah uh, one question about um the the kind of the us model that you're talking about globalization is is a is a commercial fact as far as corporations are concerned 
and they will say they want they want universal banks, which can do the th business for them worldwide and so on. At that point, uh, you're running up against uh, the problem of what you do, surely, in regulatory terms uh, in a global context, and also there is a complication of things going wrong, and, and, and I don't see how that can be resolved. So. Uh, First off, whenever I hear bankers talk about the value of uh, uh, universal banking, it's always our customers want it. I have very rarely, never, heard a customer says, I really want a one-stop shop for my, uh, for, for my loans as well as for my, for my debt securities. They may, these people may exist, I've never encountered them. These are figments of, in my view, of the, of the self-interested imagination of, of, of the universal bankers. Um, so th th there, are, there are two issues that arise uh, with globalization in, 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 in this scheme. One issue has to do with what if crazy people go and put their deposits in a crazy bank abroad? Uh, you have what, one of your municipalities put money with the Icelandic banks? Uh, there, the, the, there the rule is, to my, to my mind, is fairly straightforward. Uh, it's, the same, it's the same rule that you have with securities in the United States, which is where, where, regardless of where the issuer is domiciled, if you try to raise money from, the, uh, from U.S. investors, you fall under U.S. securities laws. So I am concerned principally with protecting U.S. depositors. Uh, and I do not see a huge problem if we have, I think we need large banks, by the way. I think w w w one, of the, one of the problems with U.S. regulation was that there was an ideology going back to the 1790s which said the best bank is, is, is a one branch bank. And that was madness because as the economy evolved, Towards having, towards having larger and uh, to having larger and larger companies, uh, banks couldn't keep pace, and therefore businesses were pushed into into the securities mm -hmm. markets to a greater degree than they would have if there had been larger banks. But again, I, I see no problem with uh, having large banks that are lending institutions, as long as these as, as the credit that they provide and it's, it's loans is well securitized. Now, if what will what would what would fall out under the scheme, uh, you would lose possibly the immediate liquidity of interest rate and currency swaps. Uh, I don't think it's the end of the world if you need to find counterparties to a swap, real counterparties to a swap, and it takes a day or so to do it. I mean, the, the, the world does not come to a grinding halt. Uh, there is no reason why you have to put the depository institutions in the middle of this process. Uh, if there is such a compelling economic need to have, uh, to have interest rate and, and currency swaps, there's no reason why we couldn't have institutions that were capitalized with long-term funds as raised in the stock market or through, or through long-term funding with that standard sta 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 intermediaries. Why get the depository institutions involved? And I, I, I'm not persuaded that globalization is, 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 is an adequate reason to, to, to do this. 
Yes, Do you see any, uh, any uh, you have a worry about the sort of size of the bank, how big the bank's getting now in the US in terms of their size? Um, you know, just having top five sort of banks have like, you know, like 10 of the depository base of the entire country. Do you see that as a problem? So I see much more of a problem in the rambling scope rather than the size. Uh, I think one of the, the few good things that came out of deregulation, of, uh, possibly the only good thing that came out of the deregulation of the banking system in the 1990s is that we did away with the restrictions on bank size. So we, we, we finally got a banking system whose size could match the needs of consumers. So as, as, as I see it, the, the right analogy possibly is that of, of the restaurant business. There are some global chains like McDonald's, and they serve a need for people where there's value to having global chains. There are also a large number of single unit, local, in touch with their customers, individual restaurants. So I don't see a huge problem with large banks per se, as long as they don't get so large that they, they, that they exercise undue political influence, that that is something to, to, to always be concerned about. But if we can control the problem of undue political influence, having five large banks that have half the depository base is no more of a problem than having five automobile companies that, that produce half, you know, 90% of the automobiles or the trees. So, who will collect a few questions because we have few more minutes over here? How would you reduce this roots of ground? Uh, not deregulation or re-regulation, would that encourage it? It's, 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 it's to the floor. Let's, let's see. A few more. Yeah, sure, I'm great. It's one you needed the split between good and bad finance between the fifties and the sixties and now. You talked a little bit about now in terms of mechanization and how that facilitated the complex delivery of products. To what extent do you think technology has facilitated the, the bad things? as opposed to good things that happen, such as lower transaction costs. Yeah, uh, are you saying that we should effectively go back to the glass steagall era? Can I answer oh, three questions before Sorry. I forget? Yeah, yeah, please, 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 please. <laughs> Because I will... Uh, so I, I, I'm going further than Glass-Steagall. Uh, first of all, Glass-Steagall had a large number of loopholes in it, which were progressively exploited I mean, there are loopholes for state-chartered banks, there are loopholes for activities that were considered, for, that were conducted. And eventually by 1990, long before Glass-Steagall had been formally repealed, it had been repealed by regulatory reinterpretation. I'd go back to a 19, is it 25 or 35, New York Ban Bank Chartering Act, which said, a we charter this bank, it can do these four things which we consider banking activities and nothing else. So rather than ban things which banks can do, specify just those things that, that, that they're allowed to do. And by the way, the rest of the, you know, the, the rest of the financial system feel free to engage in, 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 all, in all these activities. Uh, going back to the question of technology. Uh, I think this, is, this has long been the excuse for the securitizers that technology made me do it. Uh, it, 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 it. 
I would argue that technology is fairly neutral in the sense that technology can enhance relationship-based activities like Lotus Notes, like Facebook, like email. I mean, so, so technology can, can improve the effectiveness with which we conduct this boots on the ground stuff, or it can be harnessed to produce this low cost, this low cost other stuff. I, I would argue that it was because of the ideology of financial economists, uh, in hand in hand with the ideology of the regulators, that caused technology to take this direction rather than the other direction. The third last question I forgot. Boots on the ground. Boots on the ground. How can you induce it? Can you induce it by regulation? Yes, I mean it is. It it, it was uh, banking is an activity which absolutely requires regulation. Uh, in because there is no at least if you want banks that transform maturities. And you may argue that we don't want banks that transform maturities. We may argue that we don't want banks that uh, that create credit. In which case, you could potentially have a banking system based on gold coins. But to the degree that these two activities, that banks do these two things, which is that they create credit to a large degree out of thin air, and they transform maturities, it is absolutely crucial to have a system where depositors have faith in the bank and have uh, faith in each other. There is no way that depositors can examine the soundness of banks. There is no way that depositors can examine the beliefs of other depositors who mind mindlessly run on a bank. We need an entity that acts on behalf of, of depositors and A, ensures depositors that your money is there and B, acts uh, as in, in, on behalf of depositors. It does things that depositors would do if they had the time and the en en energy and the information to do what depositors do. So I personally, in a completely unregulated banking system, the, I, I dare say that the amount of derivatives on JP Morgan's books would be zero. Because in an unregulated banking system, no depositor would deposit a nickel in JP Morgan Chase, knowing that they had these derivatives which are, are, hard, to, are, are hard to control. So if we are going to have deposit insurance that takes over the functions that the depositor would do, which is exercise oversight, then the, then the deposit insurance entity should take exactly the same attitude as the depositor, which is, we ain't going to let you do stuff that we can't monitor. And so th there, is, there, is no, uh, there is no alternative to tough regulation to get back to this boots on the ground dictator, boots on the ground finance. Sorry, come back. Yeah. There was more. You favor old-fashioned boots on ground rather than box-ticking yes. lending. Yeah. How could you induce that? Oh, you, you simply say that I want to see a loan file where you have gone through this, uh, a, a, a prudent due diligence process. You don't actually have to... I mean, you, you, I wouldn't want go to the degree of, of, of saying that you have a spy who follows the guy around to make sure that the boots have been been worn down or, or measure the thickness of people's uh, uh, shoe leather. But there are things like loan files, which 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 used to be done, by the way. I mean, you literally said, "Where's the loan file? What's in the loan file? Who did, who did you interview? What's what's in there? And what's not in there?" Right. Well, thank you.
Thank you very much. We're literally out of time. I just want to uh, say before we thank uh, Professor Vida that he's going to be signing his books uh, outside in the lobby. So thank you very much. Thank you.